most of us are happy to use all kinds of digital services and tools constantly. Messaging with friends and families, sharing holiday pictures, or buying all kinds of stuff online. It's easy, it's fast, it's comfy. Yet something has changed in recent years. Many of the services we are happy to use online have lost a bit their, so to say, innocence and started to impact the real world, quote-unquote, more than we thought. Online competition has stalled because of just a few big players are seem to be left. Hate speech has transformed some of, of the online spaces into rather unpleasant, you could even say toxic experiences. And there's even evidence that social media has influenced elections and led to hate crimes on our streets. So there seem to be several phases to digitalization. At the same time, the European Union has started to work on a series of laws that aim to tackle some of these issues I just mentioned, but at the same time also try to unleash the economic and societal potentials of digitalization. So stay tuned for an all-digital episode of EU Untangled. That's the music. music. Welcome to another episode of EU Untangled. My name is Alex, and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-host, Victor. Vic, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm super happy to be back uh, on EU Untangled. EU Untangled is back with a topic that, um, on the one hand, is quite relevant to all of us, and at the same time, also quite abstract at the same time. So today we want to give you a concise overview um, of the EU's digital legislation. And luckily, I didn't have to conduct a long search to find a, a real expert on, on these matters. Um, <laughs> as my, as my co-host, Vic, actually knows more than a thing or two, I would say, on, uh, on EU digital legislation. Um, what's your background on these, on these topics, Vic? Well... Um I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on digital legislation at the EU level, but I just happen to be working on um, a number of digital files. Um, right now, I work as a um, parliamentary assistant to a member of the European Parliament. And, well, I get to, you know, um, spend some of my time in the office working on some digital legislation. So here I am, happy to be of use. So let's then get right into it. Um, before we turn to some more specific law, um, maybe you can try to set the scene for me in a way that why is the EU doing all this work on, on digital legislation at the moment? Yeah, I guess um, an easy way to put it would be by quoting the great Olivia Newton-John, who has uh, this very famous song called Let's Get Physical. Uh, you probably know what I'm talking about. It goes a bit like, let's get physical, physical. If you substitute physical for digital, that's basically what the EU is trying to achieve. The EU is trying to let's get digital. So the European Union um, wants right now to become a leader in what it's known as a data-driven society. Um, it wants to, and here I'm quoting what the European Commission says, um, it's trying to become fit for the digital age. So data is a new oil. Uh, we live right now in a hyper-connected world where 
pretty much everything we do generates some kind of data that is recorded somewhere. And that data has some use. Um, we generate data when we work, when we shop, when we eat, when we exercise, when we commute, even when we sleep. Just think about all the time that we spent in front of a computer. Right now, you and I are sitting in front of a computer. You're recording from Berlin. I'm recording from Brussels. Uh, think about all the time that you spent on a tablet or tapping on your phone, wearing a smartwatch or an Aura ring, listening to guilty pleasures on Spotify, you know, um, clicking yes on cookie banners when you are shopping online or whatever. So all this has a value. And it doesn't matter if we know it or not. We're just generating value all the time. So um, the European Commission has actually published some uh, fun facts on data uh, to, that aim at giving us some kind of measure as to the size of the data market that is out there ready to be tapped on. So, for instance, when it comes to data volume, uh, it is estimated that in 2018, we were generating 33 zettabytes of data. Mm -hmm. um, in 2025, and that is three years from now, that amount will have grown uh, to 175 zettabytes. Um, and these concepts what is don't a make a lot of sorry. sense. <laughs> I'm sorry, you were just saying it. <laughs> no, that is a great question. What is a zettabyte? <laughs> like, none of what I'm saying makes a lot of sense in and of itself. One zettabyte is one billion terabytes. And one terabyte is 1,024 gigabytes. Yes. Okay? So most of uh, today's laptops or computers uh, have a capacity of one terabyte, or an external hard drive is one terabyte. So one billion terabytes, which is one zettabyte, is a lot of information. So if, if in 2018 we're generating 33 zettabytes, and by 2025 we'll be generating more than 170 zettabytes, that is a lot. So if you were to compress all of that information that we'll be generating by 2025, on 512 gigabyte tablets, which is your average size tablet, um, and you were to pile them on top of each other to create a tower, that tower would be tall enough to go to the moon and back, starting on planet Earth, five times. Now, don't ask me how they make the, made these calculations. I'm just going to have to trust the European Union on what they're saying. But it's just insane. Like It's just crazy that we're generating so much data. So... What is the value of that data? Well, the value is estimated to grow from 300 billion euros in 2018, which, is a, which back then was equivalent to 2.4% of the EU's GDP, mm -hmm. to more than 800 billion by 2025, which by then will account to, for almost 6% of the EU's GDP. So the, both the volume and the value of data continue to grow in the European Union. And the European Union wants to make sure that it can tap on this value. Now, if you look as well at what's happening on uh, in the world, if you look at the top 10 companies um, that are the most valued companies in the world, five of them are actually tech companies. So uh, the first four are Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Amazon. And then uh, number eight is Meta, formerly known as Facebook. Um, and that is also remarkable. Um, and if you actually look closer at the other companies in the top 10, you could easily argue that there are others that are also tech companies. You have Tesla, which is number five, and it's all about, you know, electric and more and more um, smart cars, connected yes, cars. Sure. Yeah. You have NVIDIA, which is a chips company. You have TSMC, mm -hmm. which is another uh, semiconductor manufacturing in Taiwan. Yeah. So um, 
this is the reality that we're living in. So um, the EU wants to take advantage of this and have a seat at the, you know, decision-making table or whatever. So, it, so you would say it's mainly about economics and uh, and and earning more money, or what other key objectives the European Union or the European Commission has tried to tackle? Well, you're right that to a great extent this is driven by economics, by the value that um, can be generated from data. Um, it's also a lot about innovation. Um, a lot of our lives now happen online. And, and this is a trend that will probably only increase in the future. Um, there are a lot of uh, practical um, um, technological innovations as well um, in AI, artificial intelligence, and blockchain that can only be created if you have uh, the right um, uh, or enough data being generated that you can use to develop new applications. Mm -hmm. um, the European Union knows very well that digitalization can also drive other goals, like, for instance, a green transition, how to optimize our energy grids, for instance, or how to make uh, the buildings in where people live and work more energy efficient. Um, digitalization can also improve public services. It can optimize road traffic. Uh, mm -hmm. It can offer personalized medicine. So these are all, uh, let's say, um, innovative approaches that can be driven by digitalization. Um, and then, of course, there is the issue of sovereignty or competi competitiveness on the world stage. Um, there are other countries or other regions in the world that have been doing their homework in the past uh, 20 or 30 years and are way ahead um, uh, than the EU. So uh, here is, of course, uh, countries like the US or China, but also smaller mm -hmm. countries like South Korea, Japan. Um, the East Asia region is also quite advanced in general. So um, if the EU is to remain competitive on the global stage, then it has to catch up with these guys. Just to add, maybe it also feels like at least looking at, the, at one of the pieces we will talk later, that also the topic of... Uh, fake news and and hate speech and also illegal content seems also of a topic here. You are absolutely right. Um, it's not like fake news or hate speech or misinformation did not exist before the digital age, but now they're certainly amplified. When you think about um, online platforms, uh, social yeah. media, uh, when you Think about how fast information is communicated nowadays and how much more accessible it is to the average citizen. Uh, then, yes, uh, a lot of the provisions that were in place to tackle these kind of issues in the physical world now has have to be updated and transposed to the online world so that these issues are properly addressed there. And this is also something that uh, not only the EU, but I mean, any country in the world uh, has to ha has to do to ensure that we all continue living in as uh, peaceful as possible society. Great. So let's then look into some of the of the concrete pieces of legislation. What in your view are the main pieces um you, you, you'll find the most relevant pieces the eu commission has drafted and are currently in discussion with the european parliament and the uh, council right that is a um, difficult question because a lot of things seem very important right now when it comes to digital digitalization um but if you force me to choose a, a few that we could 
discuss to mm -hmm. a certain extent during this episode, then I would I'll force you now. Yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> then I would choose uh, four. Um, two of them are were what are known uh, by many as a one-two punch uh, by the European Union, and these are the famous. Digital Services Act, or DSA, and the Digital Markets Act, or DMA. Mm -hmm. So the the former, the DSA, and, and I am fully aware that all this sounds like we're talking about illegal drugs here, DSA, DMA, but no, these are regulations that are currently on the table and are being discussed at the European level. Um, the G Digital Services Act is about mostly about content, online content, and how to regulate that content, how to make sure that whatever it is that you find online, be it a product or service information, on the one hand is legal and on the other that it's safe. The Digital Markets Act is more about competition in the digital sphere, in the online space. And then the other two pieces of legislation are also kind of, you have to look at them together because they're mm -hmm. all about increasing data flows and data availability, data sharing within the European Union. And those are the digital, uh, the Data Governance Act and the Data Act. Um, so Great I would go for those four. <laughs> uh, yes, you know which, which, very well how creative uh, commission officials are when naming these uh, regulations. That's like the most, the most confusing way to name two pieces of, of legislation. One we call data and the other one we call data governance act. I Absolutely, guess. yeah. <laughs> like, as if it were not confusing enough already. Great. So let's maybe then turn to the, how did you say it, the two punch? One two punch. One two punch. Yeah, because I if you're in a fight, right, and 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 you want to hit someone, ideally you land one blow first, yeah. and then another one. Uh -huh. You don't stop with the first one. So it's like one two punch, and boom, you're down. So maybe let's start. If you are fine with it, with the Digital Markets Act, could you maybe say what is the key problem the EU Commission tried to tackle with that piece? So what is, the, you know, why why do we need that thing at all? Right. Um, so the Digital Markets Act, um, as you rightly mentioned, was the proposal was published in December 2020. Mm -hmm. And last month, uh, the end of March, uh, the co-legislators and the European Commission, which is executive of the European Union, reached a political agreement, co which means... The co-legislators, I have to here play the jargon police, uh, is on the European level, the EU Parliament and the Council, so all the member states, just... Correct. <laughs> Correct. So, Sorry to uh, interrupt you. <laughs> with any piece of legislation, uh, the European Commission first puts forward a proposal. That's what happened in December 2020. Yeah. And then the European Parliament and the European Council, which represents member states, they improve, they amend these legislations, right? They uh, bring in their inputs. So um, usually they do not change that much, not substantially, like the first draft from the European Commission uh, stands, you know, it's like the basis of their work. But then, of course, they sometimes make some very important additions or deletions, depending on uh, how they tackle the issue. So anyways, in a nutshell, they have arrived at an understanding. So now there is, uh, you know, this, um, this one document that brings together all their input. So the Digital Markets Act is a regulation that basically aims at preventing unfair practices in the European digital market. So it has a lot to do with competition. Uh, what it wants to do is making more room for innovation and competition, ensuring that there are fair prices in the digital market and that consumers have more choice. Um, and here you were asking, well, what is the problem? Why is this needed? Um, 
well, the thing is, if you look at the European Union only, uh, there is an estimated 10,000 high-growth, small and medium-sized enterprises operating in the EU digital market right now. So mm -hmm. 10,000 small fish. However, in that same EU digital market, a handful of players um, dominate the provision of services, um, in the provision of digital services. So that means that power is concentrated. And you know that the concentration of power is never a good thing. A company that is way too big or that controls a huge share of the markets can easily raise prices on its own, uh, which eventually leads to uh, downgrade in quality. It can mm -hmm. keep competitors out. It can stifle innovation. And at the end of the day, if it's big enough, it can pursue its own ends, which usually has to do with maximizing profits at the expense of any public good. So the digital market is becoming highly, highly concentrated. Mm -hmm. and, and what this bill aims at doing is making sure that other smaller players can compete in a more, uh, can compete better, that they have a chance at succeeding too. Mm -hmm. And that this eventually translates yeah. into better prices and more quality and more choice for consumers. When you talk about big players, I guess you mean companies such as Facebook or Instagram. Um, what other companies qualify to be a big player and how is the DMA defining this category of big players? So you mentioned, for instance, Facebook, uh, Instagram. We all think about these two, we, which are actually the same parent company, Meta. Um, but there is also other very big companies such as Amazon, which is an online marketplace. Um, you have Apple, which manufactures uh, a lot of the phones that European Union citizens use, iPhones, uh, or the computer, for instance, in which I am recording this podcast. So um, what the Digital Markets Act does first and foremost is it lays out a set of criteria to identify with which online platforms qualify as so-called gatekeepers in the EU digital market. And gatekeepers are defined as players in the market that have a strong and durable economic position and that operate, and this is very important, a core service that functions mm -hmm. as a gateway for business users to reach end consumers. So this is about very, very big companies like the ones that we have mentioned before that operate a core service that can be, you know, uh, an online intermediation service like Amazon, which is a marketplace, you know, okay. that allows uh, companies to sell products to end consumers like you and I, be it books or, you know, a phone or a computer, or a suitcase. Um, another core service can be uh, a social network like Facebook. It can be a video sharing platform like YouTube. It can be an operating system like iOS or Android. It can be cloud computing like what Amazon Web Services does. It can be advertising. It can be web browsers. Mm -hmm. It can be app stores or voice assistants. These are all core services that allow users Uh, or end consumers and businesses to connect with one another. And that means that these are gatekeepers. Like think of Hodor from Game of Thrones, like holding that door, right? That is exactly what a gatekeeper does. But contrary yeah. to Hodor, these guys are not necessarily good. Okay, and here I'm, I'm just saying like, it's not good because you know <laughs> what is not coming through is more competition, right? So I, I, I was actually more thinking about the bouncer at the, at the nightclub. Or a bouncer. Yes, deciding like who can who can enter. Um, so so you're saying basically that um, if I want to sell a product, basically I have to be on Amazon 
or if I want to connect with my friends, I have to be on Facebook because um, because if not, I cannot sell it because no one will find my company. Or if I'm not on Facebook, if I'm on a very, very small social network, obviously no one of my friends will be there. Um, I understand that, but why cannot the market solve that itself so why cannot be there like a new facebook coming and being like super cool like the european facebook uh, you like like a copy so to say and then say oh we'll do a better service like we, so wh why yeah. has the european commission say uh kind of like basically not not but kind of like regulating that here and and also i read quite a bit of criticism that this is actually less about digital competition it's actually a bit of an anti like an, an anti-American um, piece of legislation that just tries to kind of like stop the power of these of these mostly American companies to so that the European maybe the European technology companies have a better edge. I see. Well, I can imagine very easily that creating another Facebook would cost a lot of money. Uh, it would cost a lot of money. It would take a lot of time, and then the odds that users would switch to the new Facebook would be not very high, I guess, because users or end users are probably already locked in. So mm -hmm. this is something that would be very difficult to see happening kind of naturally. So um, given the dominant position that these companies already have, think, I mean, uh, an example for myself is my use of WhatsApp. Like WhatsApp is the electronic uh, communication platform that I use on a daily basis um, for... Un unless I, I force you to use Signal. And you're the only one. <laughs> and that's my point. I downloaded <laughs> Signal for, to, in order to be able to keep on communicating basically with you because you are my one friend who doesn't really use WhatsApp. And then you force me to be on Signal. But what happened is that now I have two apps on my phone. But the one that I really, really use is WhatsApp and Signal is a secondary one. Like just the cost yeah. of switching, even though they are actually free, quote unquote, again, free in, term, in the sense that we don't pay any money. Um, I still stay on WhatsApp and most of my communications go through there. And I'm certainly not close to uninstalling WhatsApp from my phone. So um, what the European Union is doing with this bill is basically saying, well, let's first identify those companies that are big enough to play a dominant p position uh, in the digital market in the European Union, then let's identify which core services there operate that s keep other players from uh, benefiting from the data that is generated uh, or that keep them from uh, competing in a fair environment to propose alternative solutions mm -hmm. for end users. And once we have identified them, then we will impose on them a series of do's and don'ts. So things that they can do and things that they cannot do anymore. Because so far, our rules have been very uh, loose on them. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is where the interesting thing starts. Because um, uh, first of all, gatekeepers, and this has to do with another issue that you raised, uh, will be those companies with an annual turnover that is higher than 7.5 billion or that have a market capitalization that is a value uh, higher than 75 billion and that have at least 45 monthly end users and 10,000 annual business users in the EU. So these are conditions that are not easily met by your average yep. 
a, a digital company or SME or startup. So yeah. r- you rightly said that uh, the kind of companies that will be caught up in by this legislation are mostly big tech. So we think mm-hmm. of Meta, we think of uh, Alphabet, uh, Apple, Microsoft, and then also some non-American companies such probably Booking or Alibaba or Zalando here in Europe. Um, but it yeah. is true that at the end of the day, it will be somewhere between 15 and 20 companies that will be yeah. affected by by this law and a common criticism from the US administration and from the companies of course in Silicon Valley has been well this is an anti-American law um, yeah. what the EU says is it's not an anti-American law it's an anti-anti-competitiveness law so we're mm-hmm. making sure like for whatever reason like American companies are the gatekeepers right now but mm-hmm. we're putting in place a law that will avoid other companies in the future from becoming gatekeepers yeah. Before we turn then to another piece, uh, the, the DSA, maybe can you maybe give um, like a couple, one, two, three, four um, key changes that the DMA uh, is introducing? Absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples of the things that now these gatekeepers will have to do and a yeah. couple of examples of the things that they will not be able to do anymore. So uh, a gatekeeper, for instance, uh, will have to give users the right to unsubscribe from certain core platform services. So mm-hmm. um, users will have this freedom. Uh, another thing that they will need to enable is to make the basic functions of their instant messaging services interoperable. So this means that WhatsApp, Messenger, iMessage, Signal, Telegram, they will have to open up and be interoperable with one another. And this means that I should be able in the future to message my friend Alex, who uses uh, Signal, from my WhatsApp without having to download Signal myself. And you will be able to message me from Signal without uh, you know, having to download WhatsApp yourself. Um, in theory. In theory, yeah. So let's see how this goes. But this is the yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, this is how this should be translating in the future. Another thing that gatekeepers will need to do is, and this this is very important, uh, is uh, that their operating systems will have to allow alternative app stores as long as they meet certain cyber requirements. This is especially relevant uh, when it comes to Apple because the Apple App Store um, plays a dominant position. Like um, app developers, uh, software developers, they have to go through the App Store and they have to comply with the very strict requirements that Apple has in their system. So this is kind of like opening up possibilities for them to create more better um, apps. Um, so these are the kind of some of the examples that that yeah. they will have to do. They will also have to always inform the European Commission of any acquisitions and mergers that they are planning on doing. So there are going to be a bit more restraints. Then among the things that they cannot do anymore is, for instance, imposing software by default. Uh, an example is a web browser. Um, yeah. Now users, let's say that you just bought a phone. Uh, you get the phone, you unbox it, uh, you fish it out of its package, and then you will have a choice screen that will allow you to choose 
which virtual assistant or browser or search engine you want to have in your device instead of having one by default and then you know you actively choosing another one here they will ask you first they will uh, gatekeepers will not be able to rank or treat their services or products more favorably here you can think of amazon where if you go and you type like suitcase maybe amazon gives you its own branded amazon suitcase before showing you a samsonite one or another brand because yes that's how Amazon operates and, you know, uh, drives out competition. Um, there is also, um, uh, they will not be able, gatekeepers, for instance, to require app developers to use the payment or the ID services yeah. of, of uh, that, that they operate in order to be listed in their app store. This is also very, very important. There are a couple of lawsuits there going on, you know, between uh uh, companies like Epic Games, who are the developers, or Fortnite, yeah. like a game that is played by millions of millions of people in the world, and Apple, because they have to go through their app store and they get like a huge cut, or Spotify as well. So these are the kind of things that won't be allowed anymore. And Epic don't doesn't want to pay, of course, the high fees Apple is uh, taking from them. Of course, <laughs> some some of the things you you have mentioned uh, seem to kind of like cover a bit some of the issues that the European Union has already been dealing with in the last years i just remember there have been several uh, cases at, at the european union level where the european commission tried to try to force some of the big tech companies to be more fair uh, there was this case where also google actually had been uh, showing results of google shopping more favorably if you were looking for products in google mm -hmm. so there seems to kind of like now they seem to uh, or the dmh seems to try to tackle some of these issues the European Commission has been fighting in the last years. It's precisely that. It's giving the European Union more teeth when it comes to biting down yeah. on uh, on these very big players. Uh, so now the question, and to continue with analogy, is whether yeah. uh, the Commission is biting off more than it can chew. Because, uh, of course, for this... Uh, piece of legislation to actually work, the commission will need to enforce it. And enforcement will be very tricky. Uh, one of the criticisms is that the commission doesn't have the capacity to do it. So, for instance, the initial proposal foresaw 80 additional staff that the commission would need to hire in order to enforce this legislation. And when you think of 80 uh, yeah. policy officers trying to fight against uh, the likes of uh, Google or YouTube or Facebook or Instagram, you know, uh, it sounds ridiculous. So one of the things that the European Parliament was calling for is let's not get 80 staff, let's, uh, let's get at least 200 because this is not going to be nearly enough. So the question of enforcement, yeah. of course, is going to be on the table. Also, whether, uh, you know, uh, these people have the necessary skills, both legal, technical, um, to, to enforce uh, this legislation because you will need to have highly skilled individuals behind this um but yeah this is definitely a, a big punch from the eu So after this first punch there i think we can go to the second punch um you have mentioned before the digital services act the dsa um i have read that there is a quote by the famous philosopher from spider-man with great power comes <laughs> great responsibility peter parker 
Uh, I also have some somewhere read that what is illegal offline should also be illegal online should be the slogan of the DSA. Mm -hmm. uh, is it the first one or is it the second one? Or Right. Well, it's both of the things that you mentioned. Um, the DSA is also known as the Content Moderation Bill of the European Union. And um, this is a regulation that is actu that actually updates an older piece of legislation from the year 2000, which was known as the, or is known as the e-commerce directive. And basically between 2000 and 2022, which is where we are right now, uh, two decades have happened. And in those two decades, uh, the core players of the digital economy have evolved significantly. So what the DSA does is that it updates these rules and makes them, and here I'm quoting the European Commission again, fit for the digital age. So it introduces cumulative and proportional uh, so-called due diligence obligations for online services according to their size, their role, and the impact that they have on the digital ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So again, this is targeting, you know, um, well, here actually they're targeting the whole digital ecosystem, except like if you, uh, the, the smaller your impact is, the fewer obligations you will have, the bigger your impact and your responsibility, as Peter Parker, Parker wisely said, uh, the bigger they are, then the more obligations you will face. So this is sure. a way in which the European Union is trying to make these uh, online services accountable for their decisions, decisions when that they make when they host or disseminate information online, when they sell products or services online, when they take down content or when they suspend the service. So here the final goal is to make sure that fundamental rights are protected online. And here we're talking about things like freedom of expression, freedom of information, freedom to conduct a business or the right to non-discrimination. So here the end goal is creating a safer digital space for users. And that is mm -hmm. where the uh, catchphrase that you mentioned at the beginning applies very well. What is illegal offline should be illegal online. It's a single mm -hmm. set of rules for the 27 member states of the European Union to create a safer digital ecosystem. Wow, that sounds quite a big, quite a, quite a big chunk of of different articles. Um, oh man, it's a mess. It's it's huge. It seems to be also that there are a lot of different things targeted at the same time. Can you maybe go into the like more controversial parts of the sure. DSA and, uh, and 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 kind of like also again highlight a bit like what changes from before mm. to after? Yeah, uh, I'll do my best because there is a lot to unpack from the DSA. So the DMA, which the Digital Markets Act, it's a bit more straightforward in the sense yeah. that, you know, it's an economic instrument that yeah. is meant to increase competition. So it's like, how much money do you make and how many users do you have? Okay, you're a gatekeeper. And this is, you know, for these very technical reasons, so this is what you cannot do anymore and this is what you have to do. Yeah. Okay. Fair it, because sorry, because in the DSA we're we're talking about illegal stuff, but then it's it should yeah. be an update of the e-commerce uh, directive, which kind of like from my perspective doesn't have anything to do with like fake news and stuff. This is also mentioned there, so uh, it seems to be like a really big, uh, broad piece of legislation of that checkers all kind of like from illegal illegal yeah. products towards also other content. But sorry, I go ahead, please. Yeah. So okay, let me let me try. Um, I guess the first thing that. Uh, has to be said is understand a bit the structure of the DSA. So the DSA targets uh, the so-called intermediary services 
which are a wide range of service providers that basically facilitate online interactions between individuals. Um, uh, a bit like, you know, uh, the operators of core services, these are service providers that connect consumers to goods, to services, or to content. So some of these service providers, they offer network infrastructure. Others connect users to the internet. Uh, some others just transmit information over the web, or they host web-based services. Other service providers gather information, they assist searches on the internet, or they enable the sale of goods and, and services. Or maybe they allow you to, you know, uh, post uh, your favorite memes to embarrass your friends publicly online because you disclose some uh, something embarrassing about them. Or maybe to tweet your sloppy thoughts such as, oh, how much does Twitter cost, you know? Uh, some of them actually have several functions. So here again, uh, we're talking mostly about very big tech, but the difference with the DMA is that the DSA actually imposes obligations to anyone in this very big digital ecosystem. So there is like um, four categories basically of ob obligations um, mm -hmm. the most basic one is that the dsa uh, now makes it mandatory for all kinds of intermediary services to um, be more transparent and to report on their content moderation engagement so how how many times and how often they engage in content moderation uh, so here is all the all this, this digital ecosystem. So that's the basic, mm -hmm. the most basic category. And that is not very controversial. The second category uh, is the one that applies to hosting services. These are service providers that store information provided by and at the request of a recipient. So here is where obligations start to escalate. Something like, I just, I just want to make it a bit more clear for the listener, something mm -hmm. like Dropbox, for example. It could be one or Google Drive that is storing data for you. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes, those those are good examples. Um, so here, uh, the moment you already qualify as a hosting service, uh, you have to put in place a number of mechanisms, such as a, this is called a notice and action system mm -hmm. uh, that allows users to flag illegal content. The DSA does not define what counts as illegal content. The definition mm -hmm. of illegal content is that that is defined at the national level by each member state of the European Union. And of course, it, what is defined as illegal by union law. So the DSA mm -hmm. will doesn't go in that direction. Um, so basically, uh, all these uh, online platforms, they have to have a, a, a flagging system so that users can say, hey, I think this content is illegal. Uh, so they can make that um, visible to the service provider. Mm -hmm. um, hosting services will also have to provide reasons to users whenever they remove or they disable content. And they also have to give them the possibility to challenge that decision. And uh, and here, okay, this is already another category, but I guess the easiest example would be uh, you post something on Instagram, you know, yep. and, and then uh, Instagram removes it. And you don't know if it's because you actually violated the terms and conditions because maybe, you know, it was a picture of you, you know, nude on the beach um, or because, uh, or, or, or it was a mistake. Uh, so you have to have a way to easily, um, they, now the platform has to give you reasons, you know, as yeah. to why they did that. Uh, they have to do it fast and then they have to give you a possibility to challenge that decision. So this is the second category, right? Mm -hmm. Then the third category is where the obligations become a bit more interesting because 
this target's online platforms. And this is the definition would be it's a, a provider of a hosting service, right? So they store mm -hmm. information, but also disseminates that to the public. So okay. here, uh, the easiest examples are platforms such as Twitter or yeah. YouTube or Facebook, right? Be be because... Um, because the, for example, Dropbox is not public. It's covering my Dropbox. It's they exactly. can't be content. Okay, and then in Twitter is it, it's, yeah. If there is some content on Twitter, yeah, we, we can all see it. Yeah. Exactly. And here, um, the providers of these services, online platforms, uh, they have more obligations. Uh, and yeah. remember, these are um, obligations that are on top of the ones that we have already mentioned. So here, yeah. they will need to make sure that they have a number of things in place an internal complaint handling system so that they can handle properly complaints from users. Um, they will also need to prioritize uh, notices of illegal mm -hmm. content that come from so-called trusted flaggers. So here will be uh, a, a number of independent specialists with some expertise in detecting, identifying, and notifying okay. illegal contents that will be defined, you know, at the you know member state level or union level. So they will have to prioritize those requests because it means that they come from a uh, from a source that is like very mm -hmm. credible, that is already vetted. So they will need to prioritize them. This means also more work for online platforms. Um, they will need to have uh, a way to notify suspicions of criminal offenses to law enforcement, uh, so that they can immediately um, alert the corresponding authorities. They also will have to be more responsible for. Um, vetting third-party suppliers. This is especially important in online marketplaces like Amazon um, because here they will have to make sure that these third-party suppliers, before selling anything on their online platform, they have to provide the online platform with uh, their name, their address, their ID, sell certification that their products comply with the European Union laws. And platforms will need to make best efforts, so the very best they can, to assess that all this information is accurate. So you can imagine yeah. that this is also a very big burden on online platforms. Um, online platforms will also have to uh, um, disclose every year the number of disputes, the number of suspensions, and the number of times that they engage in content moderation. Um, they will also need to... Um, Avoid targeting minors, that is children, you know, with targeted advertising. Mm -hmm. So they will not be able to do that anymore. And this is where it gets very controversial because this is where the DSA targets a money-making mechanism of online platforms, which is targeted advertising. Um, online platforms will not be able to target minors. Then they will also not be able to deliver targeted advertising um, to people based on sensitive data such as sexual orientation, their religion, their ethnicity. So uh, a part of the online, the targeted advertisement ecosystem is going down with the DSA. And that is what a lot of companies out there uh, were criticizing because they were they were saying of on the grounds that this benefits small and medium-sized enterprises, the fact that they can better target their audiences. Um and um, and well, this is these are the conditions for online platforms, and then there is a number of additional conditions for the so-called very large online platforms, and this mm -hmm. is a special category of online platforms where uh, that have more than forty-five million monthly active users in the EU. This is the equivalent mm -hmm. of the ten percent of the EU's population. So. 
For those very large online platforms, there is a number of additional requirements, uh, like annual assessments of systemic risks. And here we're talking about things like dissemination of illegal content, um, and the effects that their own online platforms or their algorithms may have in the exercise of fundamental rights, uh, the number of times that someone tried to manipulate their service, um, mm -hmm. and they also have to report on how their so-called recommender systems, so this, uh, you know, basically an algorithm that determines how they show and rank content your, for their users, how they operate. Feed. Your newsfeed, basically, yes. Yeah. So they will have to report on all that. They will have to undergo independent yeah. audits every year. Uh, they will have to allow users as well to easily modify the preferences of their mm -hmm. recommender systems, their, their, their newsfeed. Um, they will have to uh, very clearly state in an online advertising repository all the ads that they display, uh, including mm -hmm. uh, who is paying for the ad, on whose behalf it is shown, uh, for, uh, for how long they show this advertising. Um, so these are all very strict obligations for these very large online platforms. And another important thing that they will have to do is that they will have to share data with researchers, vetted researchers and authorities, so that these researchers can uh, conduct research on the systemic risks that algorithms and online platforms in general may pose to health, electoral processes, civic discourse, public security, uh, mm -hmm. etc. cetera. Uh, and here, uh, I mean, you may have heard of some cases where researchers were trying to access data held by Facebook uh, mm -hmm. to investigate how that may have affected, you know, elections in a certain country, and then Facebook shuts them down and says yeah. like, oh, okay, you're not allowed in fa on Facebook anymore because blah, blah, blah. Well, this will not be possible in the EU because uh, if you are a vetted researcher that actually does legitimate research on online systemic risk caused by online platforms, then you will have access to this data. So um, yeah. this is in a nutshell how the DSA yeah. will operate. And, and I guess uh, some of the things uh, you have mentioned, like the risk assessments and also the access to data of platforms, I, this is something quite new as far as I'm concerned. And so I guess we're also going to see how will this actually uh, play out in reality in the future one, once the uh, piece is actually in, pract in, in, in law, in force. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Um, so so let me just try to summarize so basically you said we have four levels we have like uh, everybody who's doing basically business is offering or is the intermediary service uh, or what was it again an intermediary service no that's the right mm -hmm. word uh, it has to do like some basic requirements and then you're going up the ladder you, you're climbing up the mountains and the bigger you become uh, the more of these uh, dsa uh, rules you have to comply with and uh, and some of this has to do with illegality of products as far as I understood but also of content um, on this uh, maybe before we turn to to uh, the, the data um, laws uh, quickly but one one last question on the DSA I have is isn't this like illegality of content um, quite a problematic term because it could be that certain things that are maybe illegal to post on Twitter in one member state could be legal in another one and you know, when it comes to hate speech, for example, maybe in one country it is illegal to call someone mm. something and it's legal in another country. Is, do you see there any problem that actually, 
or 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 even or even from the other side saying oh you know the eu will start to censor our freedom of speech in the way that you know yeah well that's precisely why in the us you are unlikely to see something like this because free speech so-called free speech is uh very much valued um in 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 the united states so uh, uh but the but the point is uh here um you're right there there will be some challenging decisions when it comes to cross border uh controversies within the eu because the thing still they're still be based on on national or member states laws or union I mean, law for example if you're it sold someone online it could be it could be very kind of like very differently treated um, in Germany or in France or in other countries, if you call also based on, for example, the sexual orientation, um, this, this might be very different in different EU countries because of different politics, different governments, different social norms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, look, I I'm not sure uh, of exactly how this is gonna work in practice. Um, the devil is definitely in the details. Uh, I can imagine that there will be some controversies uh, when it comes to cross-border issues. What I do know is that each member state will have a competent authority and a yeah. so-called digital services coordinator, which will actually be a person uh, in charge of making sure that uh, this law is properly implemented and enforced. Um, and there are some uh, rules on how these digital services coordinators will have to cooperate with one another, especially when it comes to cross-border cases. Um, the European Commission, on the other hand, will have, and this is uh, the result of the so-called trilogues between the Council, the Parliament, and the Commission, the European Commission will have exclusive um, oversight powers over the very large online platforms and that is because of their size and because the systemic risks that can uh, flow from these very large players are mm -hmm. a lot higher than those from mm -hmm. smaller ones. Mm -hmm. um, there are also lots of exceptions for um, uh, micro and small enterprises in the law. So, um, But yeah, as you said, I think we'll have to wait a bit and see in practice how this works. Um, one thing that uh, legislators were hoping to avoid is the kind of controversies that, uh, according to some uh, activists and experts, have kept the GDPR from functioning properly in the EU when it comes to bringing fines to companies because then they can get away depending on which member state they are based um, and how powerful or dedicated their authorities are. The GDPR being the General Data Protection Regulation. Correct. Uh, a law on that, that tries to protect yeah. your personal, uh, yeah, personal data. Yeah. So again, the law is certainly not perfect. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of criticisms and you can look at it as in like, oh, this might curb, uh, you know, freedom of speech. But actually someone could argue this is making you freer because yeah. it's protecting you against illegal things. Anything else actually goes. And the company, you know, the social media platform will not be able to take down your post just yeah. because it doesn't like it without giving you an explanation. It will have to explain why and it will have yeah. to make sure that it's clear, you know, that it had a good reason to do so. And, and for sure, there are many people that also actually leave uh, the, con the online space because they had been uh, victims of like of like insults and like uh, like really really strong criticism to, to, to say it nicely. And so, in, in that respect, actually, yeah. it could be even enabling like a more. Yeah. Let's hope it could enable a, a more yeah. nice online space and more yeah. peaceful. Maybe let's see. Yeah, and the thing is also something that is harmful might not necessarily be illegal. Yeah. So 
of course um, that's you know where also this giving access to researchers to yeah. the data that the online platforms generate and to their algorithms and how they work will probably help pave the way towards defining new risks and maybe you know getting a better understanding of what should be allowed and what shouldn't that's really interesting and i fear we have maybe to do another episode only on the dsa or only on the dma because i think they are <laughs> in itself quite interesting yeah. especially the dsa which is covering like from seems like fake products on amazon to like risks to uh, democracy on Twitter, oh, you know, God. this it's, is like this is it's, it's just too big, and it goes is, uh, even yeah. bigger and more complex as it yeah. underwent negotiations. Like there yeah. was just like so many things we didn't even mention. But for instance, like last minute during the negotiations, uh, uh, a new article was introduced so that the DSA would also cover very large search engines, which was not uh. considered at the beginning. So now this is a completely different direction that happened like literally uh, a week ago. So. Uh, it wow. got bigger. The parliament, uh, this one is particularly interesting for me, but it also made it bigger, introduced uh, some uh, provisions in order to prohibit dark patterns, which are manipulative designs that uh, online um, platforms can use to trick you into saying yes or buying something you don't really want or maybe clicking on accept uh, when the cookie banner pops up and you yeah, agree to sharing all your all data with the company. Except all is big and green, and then you know to say no, you have to click three times. Exactly. Yeah, no, we so, all know that. Yeah. yeah. So the DSA also the DSA yeah. also became uh, you know the bill where this provision was introduced, and a lot of people were saying this is not the right place. You know, this is something that belongs to the another piece of legislation called the e-privacy mm -hmm. regulation that has been in negotiations for the past five years. And so let's not put yeah. it there, but so others wanted okay. to. So it's very big. It's messy. Let's see how it goes. But this is, yes, the yeah. second uh, blow that the EU is dealing, um, the, the tech uh, sector, the digital companies. Let's maybe for the last uh, couple of minutes, let's go maybe to uh, two smaller blows to keep uh, to stay in the in the in the same analogy. Um, mm -hmm. You had mentioned before the Data Governance Act, the DGA, and the Data Act. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I. Um, They have both to do with data, which obviously, which is is obvious from their name. But one about governance, one just about data. So my concern about the naming, I already <laughs> said before. But maybe um, instead of like going through them one by one, um, maybe you can start with like trying to uh, to tell me what is their aim um, of the two legislations and mm -hmm. how do they differ. Well. I'll start with the Data Governance Act because the Data Governance Act um, is the the first block of the European Union's uh, data strategy. So, but both pieces of legislation, both are regulations, which means they will apply equally to all member states. Also, the EMA and the SA are regulations. So, the four mm -hmm. pieces of legislation we're talking about today are regulations. They will apply in their entirety. Uh, the same way in all member states. So there will be no uh, adaptation of the law at the national level. Like, these mm -hmm. are sweeping laws so yep. to ensure yep. that the effect is the same and that there is, because at the end of the day, what we want to have is a single digital uh, market. So yep. anyways, both the Data Governance Act and the Data Act, they aim at unleashing the power of data. And that means uh, a couple of things. 
there is a lot of data out there, but there could be more. There is also a lot of data out there that is actually not being used so or that is not being shared uh, between individuals, between companies, between individuals and companies, between governments and companies, between uh, companies and governments. So these two pieces of legislation, they want to make sure that uh, there is more data available, that there is more data mm-hmm. shared, and that the sharing of all this data is done in a, a privacy-friendly way, so that mm-hmm. it's safe and it protects uh, uh, privacy. So the difference is um, Data Governance Act kind of tries to bring forward a structure for data sharing at the EU level, so some governance principles for data sharing. Um and this means that what it focuses on is on increasing trust in data sharing and increasing uh, data reuse across sectors okay. and across borders. Um, it focuses on one very particular kind of data, which is data that is held mostly by the public sector. So these are government agencies or government bodies that have data that they cannot make available as open data because it is subject to so-called rights of others. And these are um, commercial confidentiality, can be intellectual property rights, or it can be privacy concerns. So so, so the government knows something about uh, someone and it can't, can't be shared because, for example, it's about company data. Yeah, it can be, you know, health-related yeah. data. Yeah. It can or be okay. data related to the environment or to public administration itself. Um, and, sure. and, yeah. and, and if these data were shared, um, a lot of interesting applications could be developed. Maybe personalized, personalized treatments or, uh, or drugs to fight off rare diseases, which, you know, like don't get a yeah. lot of investment because me, uh, they me as a, happen. Me as a, research, me as a researcher, I, I surely would uh, probably like to see more data shared by public yeah. authorities, Ooh, especially and, in Germany. Yeah. And ask pharma companies. They would love to have access to this kind of data. Um, but this data cannot, like the government cannot just like give it away because it is not theirs and because it's sensitive. So what the Data Governance Act does is um, a couple of things. Uh, on the one hand, um, it makes sure that, um, there is in, that, there, that there are neutral and trusted data intermediaries and data intermediaries are basically data marketplaces so platforms Mm -hmm. where users can buy or sell data so access more data data that they need for their own research or to develop a new product so these platforms already exist but they are not harmonized and in many cases at least uh, in the current situation they often play a dual role where they both help um, data holders and data users access data but also they themselves use that data to yeah. develop some kind of product so what the data governance act does is ensuring th- like laying out conditions that make it very clear that data intermediaries can only help uh data holders and data users get together and exchange their data but they cannot use that data for other purposes so it's some kind of unbundling exactly so this is one thing the data governance act does another one uh, and here i'm not actually sure how well this is going to work for me it's a bit you know this area is a bit fuzzier and grayer than the digital markets act and the digital services act if this is yeah. possible at all um because what it also does is that um, it prohibits uh, n- uh non-exclusivity well it actually prohibits exclusivity agreements which means that um uh, the government cannot um, conduct 
agreements to share data exclusively with one specific organization and that organization only. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sets limits on 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 on, on the time or on, on on the length that exclusivity agreements can be struck with private companies, which is also important. And it also sets up data altruism organizations. So kind of like um, uh, recognized data altruism organizations where people and other organizations can go and donate their data for the common good, for instance, for research, like you mentioned. Um, so these organizations that will have to be listed and that will have to meet very strict transparency and safety conditions. Mm-hmm. So this is all about creating a bit more trust in data. And and then the Data Governance Act also creates this authority called the EU Data Innovation Board, which will mm-hmm. be basically a, a group of experts that will provide the European Commission with advice on data governance, on cybersecurity, data standards to make sure that uh, data can be shared in a standardized format, uh, mm-hmm. in an interoperable way as well. And the final thing that I think it's important here is that this legislation also formally establishes the creation of common European data spaces. And and these are uh, spaces in which... Um, Data will be shared in, uh, you know, standardized and in an interoperable way in key sectors of the European economy. Uh, and the idea here is to uh, motivate uh, organizations, individuals in each of these sectors to share the data first within their sector uh, before connecting these different pillars, so to say, or these different sectors to ensure that mm-hmm. data can all, can flow not only vertically but also horizontally. But you have to start somewhere. So here the idea mm-hmm. is to. Uh, create them and then separate legislation will establish them. But here the conditions are laid, like the over, like broad framework is laid okay. out so that can happen. And these are sectors such as agriculture, mobility, finance, health, the mm-hmm. environment, public administration, uh, even cultural heritage. So um, all these sectors will be and are continued to be developed, but the Data Governance Act kind of okay. provides a framework for that. So this is in a nutshell what the Data Governance Act is about. A lot of people have actually, you don't sound excited, and that is perfectly normal (laughs) because you're not the only one. A lot of people, uh, anonymously, of course, on the side of the commission and the parliament were not excited either about it. And uh, some critics say that is precisely the reason why it was agreed on so swiftly because it was published by the commission at the end of 2020 in November, and the parliament already adopted it uh, earlier this month. So it took pretty much one year for all the institutions to agree on this. And when there is not a lot of discussion, when there is not a lot of disagreement, well, you can only wonder how important that piece of legislation will actually be. Yeah, if everybody likes it, it's probably not so... Exactly. Not so ambitious. <laughs> and the companies were also, the private sector was also not particularly active there, according to some yeah. reports. Um, I was not working on any of this piece of legislation directly myself, but apparently yeah. the private sector was also busy elsewhere. He was uh, more interested in the Digital <laughs> Services Act, the Digital Markets Act, the, of course. And, and now in the Data well, Act, which is the second piece of legislation uh, that we'll talk about and the last one for today. Yeah, exactly. You just mentioned the Data Act, which... I have, uh, when preparing for this episode, I read this might be a bit more uh, controversial than the Data Governance Act. Do you agree? And if so, what, what would be the more controversial topics uh, on the Data Act? Yeah, I agree 100% because the Data Act actually deals with um, 
data that is generated by connected objects. And this is extremely interesting okay. um, because when we talk about connected objects, we talk about the Internet of Things. So mm -hmm. think about your smart TV, uh, your virtual assistant, your connected car, your fridge, uh, you know, all these objects that will um, generate data on how you use them and, and that manufacturers and developers you will use or through probably artificial intelligence uh, systems in order to optimize their performance and the delivery of services so that mm -hmm. when when you or I go to our fridge, our fridge already knows, you know, that we're running out of eggs or we're running out of milk or maybe that I don't have a frozen tuna pizza waiting for me in my freezer. <laughs> and then it will automatically place an order to the supermarket and then my Tesla car will go fetch it and then deliver it at my doorstep before I even know that I need a frozen tuna pizza. So... Uh, this is the kind of world that we will be living in in the future, actually. Um, the estimation sure is that... I'm not sure I want to do that. <laughs> oh, look, I'm not sure either that I want to live in that world. But uh, one fact is that today... Well, actually, that was a couple of years ago. But let's say that in 2018, 80% of the processing and analysis of data was taking place in data centers and in centralized computing facilities. And only 20% in smart connected objects like cars, home appliances. Mm -hmm. um, in 2025, and that is three years from now, this relationship will have inverted. So 80% of all the data will actually be generated at the edge. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is insane. So you will need to have some basic rules as to who owns who can access and who can do what with this data that is generated by these connected objects because that is the direction mm. in which we're going right now it's not clear whether the data that is generated by your uh virtual assistant you know whatever you call it yeah. um whether that data belongs to you because you are mm -hmm. the user who inputs a lot of that data whether that data belongs to the manufacturer of the device mm -hmm. or whether it belongs to the software developer or maybe to another third party that we don't know really about, but that is facilitating the processing of the data, you know, who, who owns it and who can use it for what that is not clear. And that is exactly what the data act is trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. So um, basically uh, what it does is that is it, it, and we don't need to go into a lot of detail, but it establishes some rules as to how, uh, users of connected objects can access the data that is generated by them. This is the first category. Another one is how companies can access this data too, yep. especially small and medium-sized enterprises. And the third category is how governments or public administrations can access this kind of data. And that is where it gets a bit controversial. Uh, one of the things that it does is it establishes a so-called access right so that any user will have to be able to access this data for free. And that means that manufacturers will have to design their products in such a way that makes the data easily accessible by default. Um, also, interestingly, uh, companies or undertakings, as they are formally called, uh, that are designated mm -hmm. as gatekeepers under the Digital Markets Act, they will not have the benefit of accessing this data under the access rights in the data act so they will already be excluded because they already have generate and access a lot of data so why mm -hmm. giving them more um mm -hmm. 
SMEs will also be small and medium-sized enterprises, will also have uh, more protections under the Data mm -hmm. Act, um, and the public sector will also be able to require companies to share data with them in cases of um, exceptional circumstances that require mm -hmm. data insights so that the government can respond quickly and ensure safety. And these are, you can imagine, public health threats, threats like a pandemic, Uh, mm -hmm. maybe natural disasters like floods or wildfires. And here, um, the data will have to be provided for free. And this will prove certainly very controversial during negotiations because you can imagine that companies yeah. will not want to make data available for free uh, yeah. under either economic reasons, for economic reasons, or for security reasons as well, yeah. which, yeah. you know can make a lot of sense. So that's the gist of the Data Act. Then there are also provisions to increase data portability in the cloud and the edge to introduce protections against transfers of non-personal data outside of the European Union. Um, but that would require a whole episode of its own to go through them. So I'll leave it there. That would have been my suggestion, uh, at least for the Data Act, which has been just proposed, I think, in February this year. And which is probably still, or which is currently now uh, under scrutiny by the different uh, institutions in the European Union. So, till this piece is finally at some point um, uh, negotiated and then maybe agreed on, I guess there will be some months, maybe years uh, to come. So, one, once we know more, maybe we can come back to that topic and have a dedicated episode only on the on the Data Act. Um, before we wrap up. What else do we expect in can we expect in the coming month or years, which is relevant for the EU digital space? Look, the party is just getting started. Um, there is oh, wow. there is so much happening right now. We talked about four already very complex pieces of legislation, but there is a lot already either in place or coming up. One thing is the the Artificial Intelligence Act, uh, mm -hmm. which the parliament is currently amending and improving. This is very exciting, first-of-a-kind piece of legislation because it's the first attempt by any government to regulate applic the applications of artificial intelligence. Yeah. And here what the U Europe is trying to do is avoid high-risk use cases that resemble black mirror scenarios uh, for AI. Uh, so that one is very interesting and it will have a lot of cool overlaps with data legislation because data will be the blood uh, of artificial intelligence. So you have that. You have also attempts at creating a unique digital ID for Europeans, like a kind of okay. digital wallet um, where Europeans will be able to combine their different identities, have them in one single place uh, to access online services anywhere in the EU across borders. Mm -hmm. That's also very exciting. I mentioned briefly the European data spaces, which will actually be the operationalization, if you will, of the Data Governance Act and other data efforts by the EU. You have also the CHIPS Act, which uh, whose name <laughs> I absolutely adore. Uh, makes me think of my favorite vinegar crisps. Um, and finally, finally, good name of the EU. EU finally, I, yeah. I love it. Great yeah. job there, uh, Thierry Breton. And this <laughs> one is, I mean, you could argue that it's a bit more industrial than digital. Yes. Because it's about Europe developing its own capacity to manufacture uh, the most advanced uh, chips or semiconductors. Uh, yeah. But actually, semiconductors, well, they are the building blocks of 
you know, uh, cloud computing, uh, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, or other trivial things like your PlayStation or your car. So there is a shortage of chips and the, the semiconductor value chain is incredibly complex and very concentrated outside of Europe, especially yep. in uh, East Asia. So what the European Union is trying to do here is ensure its own uh, security of supply when it comes to chips and make sure that it can, first of all, cater for itself, but then also maybe mm -hmm. leverage this so that it can have a seat at the... I guess semiconductor decision-making table. Uh, wow! Yeah. So uh, <laughs> not, not good word so far. <laughs> that will be an interesting one to keep an eye on for sure. I think I think we can wrap it up here. That has been quite a ride um, through, in, beyond, above, below all the pieces of EU legislation, EU digital legislation. Thanks, Vic, for answering all my rather basic questions, and which uh, though. Uh, provoke really good answers I, th I hope uh, interesting answers because and the topic was extremely complex I, I guess you all uh, hearing this episode uh, can agree with that um, I hope you all out there got a bit of a better understanding what's currently happening at the EU level in the fields of uh, digitalization and digital policies um, in case it is still not clear to you what what EU is what the EU is doing there, uh, which I, you're not alone. We are not alone, and also this means we actually clearly felt our task in this episode. So, uh, and or if you actually uh, realized you didn't understand anything because we, we used some EU jargon, then uh, I urge you to leave us feedback. So uh, comment us, drop us an email. We have an email address. It's called untangled at podworld.org. Um, so we can improve on that on that side and of course you can also drop us a message on the very social media platforms the EU tries to regulate we are on Twitter at EU underscore Untangled as well as on Instagram and Facebook with EU.Untangled so you can follow us there and you can also of course uh, contact us there and of course don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app that would be amazing until soon ciao And then there was this this Spotify pl playlist you want to sneak in. Maybe oh, we can sneak okay. In like this. We can do it very fast. <laughs> so I don't want to wrap up this episode without commenting on what is my favorite part of the digital legislation efforts that the EU is currently undertaking. And you would never guess what that is. What I'm talking about right here is about our dear commissioner, Thierry Breton, who is behind a lot of uh, this piece of legislation together with Margaret Vestager, uh, another European commissioner. So Thierry Breton is a French commissioner um, in charge of industry uh, at the European level. And I recently discovered that he has a Spotify account and a Spotify public profile. And every time... Uh, one of these pieces of legislation that either is introduced or finally agreed upon by the three main EU institutions, he drops a new playlist. Yes, you heard me right. A new wow. music 
playlists. So, for instance, when the DMA was approved, well, not approved, when it was when a, the political agreement uh, was achieved, he published an amazing playlist called DMA. And Alex, do you want to hear what kind of songs are there? Absolutely. Okay, so this is a stroke of genius. I am actually a bit disappointed that this has not been more publicly acclaimed because I can tell that a lot of effort went into this. So uh, if you if you have Spotify, you go to Thierry Breton's profile and you click on his DMA playlist, um, which is electrifying, then and you scroll down and you start reading the names of the songs that were added there it's <laughs> it's just pure gold so first song is called get ready second song is called dma the third one is the final countdown then as sh- as it should be approved this afternoon margaret and i together again and also with you <laughs> cedric oh but also the rapporteur schwab what will it be we are setting new rules for who gatekeepers big tech more transparency and more responsibility because no one should be too big to care the next episode dsa in the meantime stay safe and stand with ukraine boom how cool is that and these were 37 songs 37 songs i mean like who i like that (laughs) who thought of calling a song dma who thought of calling a song dsa i told you man like this sounds like drugs like that's why they're probably called that way either either he he he's very very creative or he has a very creative social media team in any case uh well we celebrate that. <laughs> Very well done, yes. Thierry Breton. Uh, and keep going this way. Yeah. And we I, I, love it. Yes, and after listening to this episode, just go on Thierry Breton's profile. He also has actually something on, on vaccines. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure. Take care, and thanks for great moderation. Ciao, ciao. Now, my favorite part of each episode, fact-checking. When talking about the DMA, Vic also known as myself, mentions that gatekeepers will be those companies that have at least 45 users in the EU. This is of course ludicrous. What Victor forgot to add is the word million. Gatekeepers under the Digital Markets Act will be those companies that operate a core service and that have at least 45 million monthly end users and 10,000 annual business users in the EU. Later on in the episode, Alex quotes Peter Parker as the author of the now famous expression, with great power comes great responsibility. However, it was not Peter Parker who uttered this phrase, but his dear uncle, Uncle Ben. Also, the expression seems to be a lot older than the Marvel Universe, with some attributing it to the French philosopher Voltaire in the 18th century, and allegedly also used with some twists here and there by British members of parliament, Winston Churchill himself and the Roosevelt presidents, Theodore and Franklin D. We hope you will forgive us for these teeny tiny blunders and that you will continue listening to EU Untangled. If you believe you found other facts that, well, are not facts in this episode, please get in touch with us and let us know. We'd love to hear from you and continue improving. Hasta la vista.